Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, Scott and I are back. Hey, Scott. What's up, Stace? Today, we are going to be talking about diagnosing a disability. Uh, Sometimes our audience has had questions for us about criteria that's required in order for somebody to be diagnosed with a disability, and we thought this would be useful for people to get a better understanding. So we wanted to talk about some of the different ways that people get diagnosed with a disability and just maybe clear up some of the... um, you know, the questions that folks have had for us in the past. So Scott, I'm going to kick it over to you first to talk about the different ways that people get diagnosed with a disability. Sure. And and it's going to vary significantly across the United States and worldwide who's qualified by government agency, oversight agencies to give diagnoses. But in general, one way to think about it that, and try to take a more practical approach, one practical way to think about it is some disabilities we have a blood test for and like we can know with like real accuracy the disability and those are usually genetic or chromosomal anomalies so if we think about down syndrome angelman syndrome williams syndrome prader willi syndrome go on and on and on and on all of those can be identified by a chromosomal anomaly or a genetic anomaly a gene or more one or more genes on a chromosome That actually accounts for not a whole lot of disability if you think about it, because one helpful way, and I know you and I have had this conversation before to think about it is, having Down syndrome, Down syndrome is not an intellectual disability. Down syndrome is Down syndrome. It's a chromosomal anomaly, trisomy 21. It's an extra chromosome on the 21st pair of chromosomes, so three on the pair to make it an extra one on the pair to make it three. Most individuals with Down syndrome do meet the diagnostic criteria for intellectual disability. Right. The vast majority do. Mm -hmm. So if we start thinking about common disabilities that we hear, autism, intellectual disability, cerebral palsy, which I believe is still the most commonly diagnosed physical disability in public schools. We start thinking about those disabilities, learning disabilities. Then we go into mental health disorders. So we start thinking about schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder. We can go on and on and on and on. Opposition and defiant disorder. All of those are what I would label, and I'm going to do my quotes here, a clinical diagnosis. And the reason why I'm using quotes is it's just a term I'm using to describe diagnoses that we've guessed on. And when I say guess, I I don't mean it's just a haphazard guess. There are really talented, qualified people who are looking at differential criteria, looking at criteria, whether it's in the DSM-5-TR or the ICD-11 now, who are really good at observing characteristics. So most disabilities, the common ones, outside of if there's a genetic or chromosomal component, are this quote-unquote clinical diagnosis. It's based on features that we see or observe. Cranial facial features, postural features, anatomical features. There's no blood diagnosis for somebody with a limb deficiency, but we can see it anatomically. Right, yeah, that makes sense. 
social features, characteristics, mm -hmm. cognitive features, characteristics, or any combination of all those. So a lot of what we see then is based on human observation, right? And like you're saying, really talented, skilled, qualified people using reliable tools in order to make those ob observations and ultimately the diagnosis. But one of the questions that I think comes up sometimes is, you know, anytime that we bring in the human factor, regardless of what it is that we're talking about, there is a potential that there would be some margin of error, right? That we could potentially get it wrong sometimes. So, you know, what are the things that we can do to understand perhaps that something could be wrong or to reduce the likelihood that that would happen? Yeah, great question. So the diagnostic tools that we have, some of those are observational by other people as well. Mm -hmm. So it could be caregivers or are giving their um, reporting on what they observe that combined with what the clinician who's or diagnostician who's doing the, uh, the assessment tool or the observation. How do we get better at it? Well, one is having qualified people to do it, people who have experience doing it. Um, the other is on some level, and this is, I guess, the practical piece, let's not put too much stock into the diagnosis. The diagnosis matters a lot in terms of services, access to services, what services somebody qualifies for. But at the end of the day, whether you are a therapist, any type of clinician, forensic interviewer, investigator, or somebody trying to access information from a care, somebody you're caring for, a sibling, a child, or something in the professional realm, on some level, the diagnosis is irrelevant because we still have to meet the person where they are. Right. You've we, we've said in our trainings, right? If you and this is we didn't make this up, but we've heard this and people use this term. If you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Meaning, it, not everything applies, right? It's a spectrum. So all disabilities, all humans, fall on a spectrum. Um, in one of our other ep podcast episodes, we talk about the term functions like a five-year-old brain of a five-year-old. Well, one of the problems in that is that not all five-year-olds, I'll use quotes again. I know you, you don't like my quotes, but quote, unquote, function. <laughs> Just because our audience can't see you. As so long know, as you tell them you're using okay. them, it's okay. Quote, unquote, function. So we would have to fully understand and operationally define what we mean by function, which is part of the problem of saying it. But also, all five-year-olds aren't the same. There's mm -hmm. lots of differences. So if we think about people, whether they have a disability or not, whether they have underlying neuropathologies like dementia, so older adults who may have varying degrees of dementia or not, or other pathologies, they're all different. There's some similarities, mm -hmm. some similar characteristics, which having a diagnosis in addition to getting services can be useful for. But at the end of the day, we have to meet the people uh, where they are. So the diagnosis should be one data point, I guess, mm -hmm. that uh, outside of a blood diagnosis, because we can be sure of that, is one data point that we use in our overall assessment, um, pre-interview uh, considerations for how we're going to conduct a forensic interview or an investigation. But I have met people with the wrong diagnosis for sure. Right, so there, there's that error, but then also at the end of the day, not putting so much into, oh, this person has a diagnosis diagnosis of autism, therefore, it means this. yeah, I must do all these things or must not do certain things. And it, it's kind of difficult because you will wanna learn, I think, how to interact better with people with autism or other, I know I keep using autism today, but other uh, disabilities as well. So we wanna learn what some of those characteristics are, but then also not necessarily be shocked 
act if someone doesn't present you know with what your understanding at this moment is of someone with autism because as you said that may be how one person with autism interacts or one characteristic that they have but the next person may not you know respond that way to a certain type of question or may not respond that way to you in a conversation so i think it's knowing but then also not having our expectations be such that we ex- you know we want people to all be exactly the same if we find out that they have the same diagnosis as another person so it's it's a little bit of a balance um, and a back and forth that i think sometimes people struggle with Permission to make an analog. Go for it. <laughs> and I, I think you can respond to this. So to me, this the, the parallel to this is like trauma. We can be taught, people can be taught trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed tools, uh, uh, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. We can understand trauma. But two kids, two older adults, two people with disabilities can experience the exact same event and it affects them very differently. Mm-hmm. And how it's affecting them, what their individual needs are. I don't know. Is that a good enough parallel or analog for you? I'll defer to my the, the trauma expert here. So I think so. And I think that that's a great way to think about it. Like people could all grow up in the same town, right? And we all end up different. People can all go to the same. Um, some are Bills know, fans. Some are Giants exactly. fans. Some are, yeah. you know, have better taste in football teams than others. That's <laughs> just the way that it goes. So I think that assuming that all people who love the bills are the same or assuming that all people that went to the same high school are going to be the same. We just know that that's not true because of our own personal experience. So taking disability, not to minimize someone's disability or their diagnosis, but taking that as what it is, which is one part of who a person is and making sure that we don't, again, sort of expect this cookie cutter or this copy and paste approach when we're talking with people, because people are going to be different based on sure their disability or diagnosis, but also where they grew up and what their life experiences have been and what their family supports are and all the things that make us who we are, I think is an important point to that too. Even though diagnosis is important, like you're saying for services, we can't put so much into it that, you know, we forget to meet the person in front of us where they're at. Right. Yeah. And getting an accurate diagnosis or having faith in the diagnosis can be helpful because there's like there's things in general to think about, like these are things you may see. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, most children with Down syndrome, although we can confirm Down syndrome with a blood diagnosis, but most children with Down syndrome have lax ligaments. Right, They're really flexible. That's a characteristic that's common. So there are going to be things that are useful things, (laughs) things, <laughs> a little bit more <laughs> useful than the word things. There's going to be information. There's going to be characteristics that are going to be useful when we have a diagnosis. So just, I guess I'm just reiterating what you said. We're not saying the diagnosis is irrelevant. It's just at the end of the day, if you don't have a diagnosis or you you think, or people, there are people in the circle that you're working with, your, either your multidisciplinary team or people in your team are saying, I'm not sure about this diagnosis. That's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. It's let's still meet this person where they are and use all the tools that we have for whether we're conducting an investigation, conducting an assessment, or doing a forensic interview, that we use those quality skills that that we have and adaptations as needed. Right. Yeah, because someone meeting that criteria may not be part of your role, right? Maybe you're not the clinician making that determination. So we're not saying that you should or shouldn't, you know, be thinking about these things, even if that's not your role. But it's also important that we don't take it necessarily so far to be like, oh, I don't believe that kid has autism, or I don't believe that person has autism, if that's not, you know, within within your scope. But paying attention to how the person responds is going to be really important. Um, And, you know, are those characteristics that you are aware of when you learn more about communicating with someone with autism going to be helpful to you in your conversation with um, the individual that's in front of you, because there are some of those characteristics like we've talked about. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, that's, I think, essentially why when I say on some level, it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. Yes, it comes with some, some interesting features about access to services and, you know, some things to think about ahead of time, like common characteristics we may see. But at the end of the day, you got to meet the individual where they are. And good forensic interviewing skills, good investigative skills, good communication skills generally transfer across all people, regardless of age, ability, characteristics, diagnoses, whatever, Culture, whatever we're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. That's all going to come into play. The, the other piece of this that, that I think is important for us to remember that comes up and cause we've talked a lot about the investigative piece, but the prevention side of this as well, where people don't necessarily identify that someone has potentially experienced trauma or had something go on in their life because maybe they have a new behavior and people will attribute it to their disability as opposed to saying, Hey, that might be a red flag or an indicator that something's going on. And I think that's the other piece of this too, is don't learn so much, you know, about, um, or I don't want to say learn so much. Of course, we want to always be learning. Don't put so much into understanding the diagnosis that you could potentially be ignoring red flags or concerns that come up. Because if someone has a new behavior, regardless of what it is, regardless of their disability or diagnosis or not, it should hopefully cue us to ask some more questions and look at that a little bit more closely too. So in addition to the investigative side, I think the prevention piece of this from an education standpoint is also really important. Cool. Any other questions for me on, uh, diagnoses and blood diagnosis and what we're labeling clinical diagnosis. So I think that just understanding that the two exist is really important for people that not all can be confirmed through blood diagnosis. You mentioned a handful. I know there's probably more um, that you didn't mention, but it seems like the majority of them are clinical diagnosis. So we're just remembering that there's human components to it. We use tools, of course, that are studied and researched and proven to be effective, but um, just keeping all that in mind that we're humans and uh, some of those clinical diagnoses, right? We can't necessarily say, you know, um, with the same certainty that we can with those blood diagnoses. I think it's important for people to be aware of. Well, hopefully this was useful for people. I think so. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Stace. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com or follow us on social media.